This is Matt Wells at UN News. Well, it's been five years since the bloody crackdown in Myanmar that forced nearly one million members of the minority Rohingya community to seek shelter in neighbouring Bangladesh, joining scores of others who'd fled previous waves of violence. Nicholas Kumjian heads the International Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar, established by the UN Human Rights Council to document crimes committed in the country, including in the wake of the February 2021 military coup. During a recent visit to UN headquarters, Mr Kumjian spoke to Diane Penn about the mechanism's work, its outreach to Burmese citizens and the challenges facing its staff. As a veteran prosecutor of international crimes, from Cambodia to Sierra Leone to the former Yugoslavia and Timor-Leste, Mr Kumjian is adamant that one day justice will prevail in Myanmar. The creation of our mechanism uh, was certainly motivated in large part by the 2017 clearance operation and the exodus of uh, so many Rohingya, but it wasn't the only event. So since the, the coup in Myanmar, we've seen increasing violence, particularly by the regime and those aligned with the regime, against those opposed to the coup. Uh, we've also seen many uh, instances of violence by all sides, and we're very concerned with that. Um, but increasingly, we see villages being burned by the military. We see mass detentions with what appear to be proceedings that don't meet any of the basic requirements of due process. Um, we see we have many reports of tortures in detention, people being uh, forced from their homes and leaving their homes because of fears of this conflict. So it's a massive campaign of crimes that is ongoing. And we are collecting evidence of those in order to hopefully one day contribute to justice efforts. Regarding all of the evidence that you've been collecting, which you've mentioned, um, you've collected, I think I read like two million pieces of evidence or thereabouts or more. Well, the, the total number of items of evidence that we've collected, and it's everything from people's statements, testimonies, to photographs, to videos, some videos taken at the time of the events, at times that crimes were occurring, uh, many, many documents. We have millions of pages. It's far more than two million pages. Uh, That includes a lot of material taken from social media that we believe includes relevant information. So we see a wide variety of crimes occurring that are of concern to us, everything from the use of importunate force in fighting to uh, force, lethal force against demonstrators without any uh, justification for that force. We see reports of crimes in detention. We're very, very concerned, and particularly with uh, reports of sexual violence against those in detention, both against women and men. And, you know, we're looking for the evidence that would show the linkage of who is responsible for these crimes. Uh, So among the things that we look at, I mentioned social media, we're looking at instances where there appear to be campaigns to incite violence, to incite hatred against a group or fear of one group in the hopes of inciting violence against that group. So we're very interested in that, and we're analyzing it, collecting it, and analyzing that evidence. Uh, So there are massive tasks ahead of us. Of course, almost most of the evidence, almost all of it, is in Burmese or other languages of Myanmar. So we are reliant on the resources we have, those in in our uh, employment who can read that, or sometimes we're also using modern uh, translation software. Um, But all of these are very challenging, and we're trying to be very 
innovative in how we approach the task of collecting evidence, given the challenges that the government of Myanmar and the current authorities in Myanmar have not cooperated with us. Neither the previous government nor the current authorities have allowed us to enter the country or to respond to our request for information. Uh, so this is not normal in a criminal investigation. You normally go to the crime scene, you interview all of those who were involved. Uh, we can't do that, but we're being, trying to be very innovative in how we collect evidence in, in other ways. Because you have so many millions of pieces of evidence, it sounds like people have been forthcoming. Um, but are you having any difficulties? Um, you mentioned, of course, the authorities and not allowing you into the country. But have people been um, okay with sharing? Or is there any appeal to get more evidence? Or Well, the only um, persons we talk to are those that want to talk to us. All of our interviews or conversations are voluntary. We ask people to share evidence with us. We haven't tried to compel anyone to share evidence. We don't have that particular legal authority in in, in any particular jurisdiction. Uh, so it's all voluntary. But what we find is that there's a great desire by the people of Myanmar to see some justice done. And people want the truth to be known. So we have many people reaching out to us with information, uh, sometimes with documents that they hold. And they do this at great risk to themselves. They understand the risks. We do all we can to talk with them and to treat them in a way that they'll be a, that it's as safe as possible. And um, you know, we have information on our website, for example, www.un.org, about how people can contact us securely. It's not a good idea to just pick up an ordinary telephone and call us. Uh, or send a regular email because of the risk that that could be intercepted. So um, we place the safety of those we interact with at the very top of our priority list. And now the evidence you've gathered, of course, the hope is that one day we will see justice. Um, but uh, the mechanism cannot. Yes, the mechanism itself, of course, is not a court. and We're not even... A, police or prosecutor's office. We can't arrest anyone, we can't charge anyone, and we don't have a court to try anyone. But that's not our mandate. Our mandate is to collect the evidence and preserve it in a way that it could be used today or many years from now, and then to prepare files that we can share with judicial authorities who do have jurisdiction and have the will and ability to bring cases to hold those responsible for crimes in Myanmar to account. And we are fortunate that there are three ongoing proceedings with uh, which we are cooperating or sharing evidence. And um, first of all, there's the investigation at the International Criminal Court. This is uh, concentrated on what happened in Rakhine State to the Rohingya. Uh, it's based on the fact that these hundreds of thousands of people that fled their homes, particularly in 2017, that when they crossed the border, uh, that crime of deportation across the state border was completed, and then they were in the territory of Bangladesh, which is a state party. It's a member of the International Criminal Court, has signed the treaty. So that, the judges have found, gives the court jurisdiction over uh, that offense and the crimes that motivated them to flee Myanmar. So the ICC investigation is ongoing, and we're co cooperating with them and sharing evidence with them. And there also is a proceeding at the International Court of Justice. Now, this isn't a criminal court. It's, a, as you know, the <laughs> highest United Nations court, and it hears disputes between states. And in the case at the ICJ, the Gambia, uh, 
on behalf of the Organization of Islamic Countries, has filed a case. Gambia has signed the convention, and it says Myanmar has not lived up to the convention. It hasn't done fulfilled its obligations to prevent and punish genocide. So that's obviously a very, very important case, important to victims, important to, I think, others all around the world. And um, we're trying to contribute evidence so that the judges have the best evidence and can make their decision based upon the best evidence of what really happened. And we continue to look for ways that we can share evidence that could be uh, useful in those proceedings. And then finally, there is already one national uh, investigation. Uh, there was a complaint filed in Argentina by Rohingya, including six women from camps in Bangladesh, uh, alleging that they were victims of serious international crimes, crimes against humanity and um, genocide. And under the law in Argentina, the Argentine courts were obligated to investigate that. If it rises to the level of crimes against humanity, they have an obligation to investigate. So they have opened an investigation there, and we've uh, been in touch with the authorities and indicated to the authorities our willingness to share evidence and uh, continue to prepare to do that, uh, including trying to get translations of the evidence to Spanish, which is necessary for their court proceedings. Returning to the Rohingya displacement from Myanmar, um, so much has happened in the past five years since that occurred, the most recent wave occurred. Of course, we had the establishment of the mechanism in 2019, which is positive, but we've also seen a lot of, well, challenges in the world. We've had um, what's happened in Afghanistan, and of course, we're all living through the pandemic, and we still have the ongoing crises in places like Syria, Yemen so much of climate issues, uh, there's so much going on in the world. Do you believe that, or do you think that perhaps people have forgot about the Rohingya crisis um, now that it's been five years? Well, of course, I mean, that is uh, natural. We don't blame anyone for it, but uh, the crisis makes the news when it happens, when it first happens, when close to a million people flee the country. Uh, and everyone is very empathetic and concerned about the suffering of people having to leave their homes and and the violence that, that many suffered in, in that process. But the, the suffering doesn't end when they leave their home. They're still not able to go home. Uh, and now, five years later, you have, for example, a nine-year-old child would have spent more than half their life in Bangladesh. They may not remember their home. And, of course, for a community to perpetuate itself, to remain a community, uh, Rohingya have their own language, they have their own customs, uh, they want, of course, to live together. And they want to live together in homes, in permanent homes in the countries, uh, country that they were born in. So, um, yes, while it's natural that the attention of the world turns to all the other crises and wars and pandemics and uh, lack of food, it's important to remember that this suffering is still exists and we can't forget them and we owe, every, all of us owe it to the Rohingya to do something to try to alleviate this situation. This situation is not sustainable. The government of Bangladesh has been very, very gracious in offering refuge to these people, but uh, Bangladesh is a poor country, and this is not their home. Their homes are in Myanmar, so we need to create the conditions that will allow them to safely return home in a dignified manner to voluntarily choose to go back and rebuild their lives in their community and rebuild Myanmar. 
Myanmar has a lot of potential if it ever can uh, get rid of this cycle of violence and impunity. And how optimistic are you um, in terms of the pursuit of justice, but also to this return, this repatriation? Well, I have to be uh, somewhat optimistic to do my job, to, you know, because we we do this work in the hope that we will be contributing. And I know it, it often seems hopeless or it seems too far away, but uh, the wheels of international justice I've seen in other cases I've been involved in, they can turn slowly, but uh, it can be very, very effective. So. I worked on the case of Charles Taylor, who was charged with uh, crimes of supporting rebels in Sierra Leone. And at the time the indictment was announced, he was the president of Liberia, and he later went to Nigeria in what appeared to be a very comfortable retirement. It seemed like no one could touch him, but eventually he was arrested, and he's currently serving a 50-year sentence for the crimes that he committed. Uh, before coming to Myanmar, I worked on the, in the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. And in 2019, the last year I was there, we got a verdict against the former head of state and the number two in the party for crimes that they had committed between 1975 and 79, 40 years earlier. So, I mean, justice shouldn't be that slow. Justice should be much faster. But um, international justice, we have found many times that what appeared to be impossible later becomes possible. No one thought Milosevic would be arrested when the indictment came out. He was uh, the head of the Yugoslavia, the head of state, but eventually he was arrested and brought to trial. Mr. Kumjian, thank you very much for speaking to United Nations News. Is there anything further you would like our audience to know, either about the um, international mechanism's work or about the situation in Myanmar in general or any final message you would like to leave us with? I would just say thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks thanks to your listeners and those interested in our work. And, you know, we really want to thank all those that have contributed, that have spoken to us, that have shared evidence. Uh, we're very grateful to you for having done so. Again, we put a priority in your safety. We want you to be as safe as possible. And for others thinking about uh, cont contacting us with evidence that they have, please go to our website or our Facebook page and you'll see information about how to safely contact us. And we really, again, appreciate all of those who want to contribute to this effort to bring some justice to victims from Myanmar.